If you would, turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 4, continuing our way through the Psalms this evening. I uh, actually spoke to Joe Riley this afternoon. I was calling him on a cell phone. I had hoped, I called after the worship service this morning, I had hoped maybe he was with Bonnie in the hospital room so that I could wish her a happy Mother's Day, but he had actually just left there, so... I got a chance to talk to him and, and see how she was doing, and she's, they expect to release her tomorrow to send her home. So uh, just she's, she's healing remarkably well and just doing really, really well. So just continue to, to keep her in your prayers. Continuing our way through the Psalms, uh, we are going to pick it up here in Psalm 4. Before we dive in, this psalm is connected to the psalm which precedes it. We looked at the context of Absalom chasing David, uh, you know, trying to overthrow the kingdom and, and try to take it for himself. And Psalm 3 was a psalm that David wrote in the morning, and Psalm 4 is a meditation that he wrote in the evening. And there is a direct connection between the two. So last Sunday evening's psalm would be a morning psalm, and this Sunday, this, this evening, this is an evening psalm that we're looking at. So look with me, Psalm 4, we'll read it, then we'll pray, and then we'll, we'll get to work. Psalm 4, answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace, I will both both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Let's ask God for his help tonight before we, we start digging into this. Father, we, we just thank you so much for the songs that you sing, that your spirit penned for us, Lord. Songs which are meant to reassure us, songs which are meant to encourage us, songs which we can sing, Lord, when we are grieved by sin, when we are even angry at the world around us. And songs like this one that we encounter tonight, Father, that are more, more like a lullaby, something that is to remind us of your care and your protection for us, and something that will help us, Lord, when troubling thoughts might keep us from sleep. Father, we just pray, God, by your Spirit this evening, that as we look at David's Psalm 4, Lord, that we would be reminded once again that a heart that is focused on you will always find rest in you. And help us to find our rest in you tonight, Father. We ask these things. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. My daughters, at some point in time, and I'm not sure exactly how this came into their heads, but 
it, it may have been that they saw a picture in a, in a book or maybe one of their friends told them a story. But at some point in time, both of my daughters came to me and they were terrified because they were convinced that a bear was going to kick down our front door while they were sleeping in their beds and was going to make its way up the stairs and then go down the halls, down the hall, obviously bypassing me and Shanti, and then would make a right turn into their bedroom and would eat them. And they were so terrified by this, they both came into our room late one night, just absolutely convinced, and this was after Shanti and I had gone to bed, but they somehow both woke up in the night and convinced themselves that a bear was coming. And so, of course, they came into our bed. And, of course, I scooped them both up, and I took them in their room, and I began to hum Amazing Grace to them, and slowly and surely, we rocked them off to sleep. Not too long ago, my youngest daughter was talking to a friend of hers who was telling her that she sometimes got scared in the night. And Olive said to her, you mean scared of a bear? And of course, this other friend of hers wasn't necessarily thinking of a bear, but a bear seemed like a good suggestion. So yes, yes, that's what I'm, that's what I'm terrifi- terrified of. And Olive's encouragement to her friend was, well, you know, if you came and slept over at my house, my dad would take care of you. He would keep you safe from the bear. There will come a point in time in which my daughters will realize that in the event of a bear attack, there really won't be too much that their dad can do. But they haven't lost that fiction yet, and we don't need to tell them right now. Lullabies ultimately are fairy tale. Lullabies are feel-good stories that make you sleep better at night, but at the end of the day, they're not based on anything substantive. We have something much better than lullabies. We have the sure and certain promises of God's Word, which we can hope in and place our trust in. Those promises will give us peace and help us sleep at night. David is on the run. His son is out to get him. He even has this guy named Shimei who has chased him from the city, throwing clods of mud and rocks at him. It's a bleak situation, no doubt. And here is what he pens at some evening during his flight from Absalom, some night while he was on the run, this psalm, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, comes to his pen. And here's how he begins. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. Now again, this is a psalm. You'll notice in the title, to the choir master with stringed instruments, a psalm. Of David, This is something that is intended to be sung by Israel during their worship. This is something that is intended to be sung by a choir. And of course, stringed instruments. David was uh, good with a harp, and, and that was his instrument of choice. And so this is something that he composed. This is something that is meant to be sung. The first line grabs you right away. Answer me. Fair enough. He's praying. He's asking God. He, he's making a petition to God. But then he makes that statement. God of my righteousness. And right there, we're confronted with a line, a lyric from a song that contains way more depth and way more theology than what we encounter in many of our modern worship songs. I want you to just stop and think about this. Please don't misunderstand me. I'm not knocking all modern contemporary worship songs. But this is something very substantive. God of my righteousness. It's twofold. David, as he's thinking about God, as he's pondering the God of the universe, as he's praying to him and making requests of him, the first thing that David thinks as he's pondering in the night, the God who looks over him, 
while he's on the run from his own son who's trying to kill him is that God is not just in control of all of life. God is not just the God who's in control of these events that are transpiring, that are impacting David. God is a God who is the God of David's righteousness. God is the God who not only can give David righteousness, a promise which is ultimately fulfilled in Christ's death on the cross, in which anybody who places their faith in Christ and seeks forgiveness from him can give his sin and the penalty for that sin to Jesus and receive from Jesus the perfect righteousness which he secured for us. Now, that is probably nowhere in David's thoughts when he pens this, this verse, this line. But undoubtedly, that is the deepest meaning of what's being said here. David probably has in his mind something else, which is equally true. Here is a king who his whole life has had a heart for God. He hasn't lived a flawless life. He hasn't lived a perfect life. But he's always wanted to serve God. And he's always wanted to do the right thing, though he's failed at it at times. Here he is on the run. His country is threatened by his own son. His own son is chasing him as a result of a curse that was pronounced by the prophet Nathan as a result of David's failure. And here David is recognizing that his power, his ability to bring control to the situation, to bring order to the chaos, to rule as king has been severely limited. His ability to exercise righteousness in this moment has been restricted by God. A friend of mine uh, that I know once uh, felt convicted by God to donate his kidney. Uh, he had two, what he supposed were two perfectly good, healthy kidneys, and he thought to himself that he would you know, go in and be a part of the living donor program. And he went and uh, signed up for it, went through all the hospital tests, and thought to himself seriously that he would donate his kidney. And he went, took all those tests, did all that stuff you have to do at the hospital, and the verdict came back, you actually can't donate your kidney because you have a rare form of kidney disease, which he was totally unaware of. And the moral of that story is, giving his kidney, which is a good thing, an act of righteousness, was something that he himself didn't even have within his own power to do. Even with all of modern technology and modern medicine, the desire to do something, to bless someone, giving the gift of life, giving the gift of a kidney, he realized he couldn't even do that unless God enables him to do it. And even when he thought he could do it, he realized he wasn't a suitable candidate for it. Our ability to do any good, our opportunity to perform any act of righteousness, only comes because God gives us that opportunity. David knows it. He's on the run. Sure, he wants to bring control of the situation. Sure, he wants to do good. But he just doesn't have it with him, within himself right now, in this moment. And God hasn't given him the opportunity right here, in this moment, to do any righteous deed. So he begins his petition. God, answer me, God of my righteousness. The God who controls every moment and every opportunity that I have to even do good, to even be righteous. That's the thought that David is thinking about God as he begins his prayer. That's an awful lot packed into one lyric. It's pretty deep. The next statement that he makes, 
verse, verse 2. He says, sorry, the tail end of verse 1. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. It's the end of his opening petition. He is reflecting on the fact that God has answered him in the past. And now notice what he says in verse 2. Turning now to those who are pursuing him. O men, how long shall my honor be turned to shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? You'll recall from last week the circumstances which brought about Absalom's demi- uh, sorry, David's demise. Absalom was very, very clever in terms of how he set it up so that the hearts of all of Israel would go after Absalom and leave David. 2 Samuel 15, Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate, and when any man had to dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, From what city are you? And when he said, Your servant is of such and such a tribe in Israel, Absalom would say to him, See, your claims are good and right, but look, there is no man designated by the king to hear you. Now, he is not engaging in the classical form of slander. He is engaging in something far more devious and far more clever. There's a difference between normal defamation, just normal slandering of a person's character, and true character assassination. What Absalom does is he doesn't just slander the king. He creates a scenario, he creates a set of circumstances in which people can think as they encounter those circumstances that there really is a defect in David's character, that there really is a fault and a failure and a shortcoming of his ruling over them as king. See, it would be one thing for Absalom to say, king's lazy, he just doesn't care about you. Well, okay, but then you begin to look at him and begin to study and as bad and as wrong as slander is, they would still have the ability to objectively obsess, uh, uh, to assess the truth of that claim. But what Absalom does is he creates a scenario in which they have to conclude exactly what Absalom wants them to conclude, where Absalom himself never says a word. He just says, look, you know, your king, you have a good complaint here, but the king hasn't appointed anyone to listen to you. So they come to the conclusion on their own. And what David says here, this is an address not only to Absalom, but to the wise counselors who are following him. He makes this statement, O men, this is undoubtedly directed right at Absalom and his closest advisors, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? Only somebody who is completely convinced of his innocence would make a statement like that. You have taken my good reputation, and you have shamed me. He goes a step further. How long will you love vain words, empty words, hollow words, and seek after lies? Absalom's companions, if they had had any reservations, if there had been any hesitation on their part, they could have stepped back and they could have said, you know, maybe we need to think a little bit more critically about what we're doing here, chasing the guy who faced down a nine 
foot giant named Goliath when he was just a wee lad for the sake of Israel. Maybe we should stop and reflect carefully about this man and his leadership rather than just jumping to conclusions. There's a whole mountain of evidence that would suggest that he was a good king. And there seemed to be an eagerness to just run away with what Absalom was suggesting. David's address first to Absalom and second to those who are following him. How long will you turn my honor into shame? And how long will you seek after empty, vain things, vain words? You know, it's, there's a sort of contagion to evil. There's a sort of influence that happens. When you live in a society that does not, to a man, worship the one true God. When you live in a community that does not to the individual make as its singular focus to follow hard after Christ. There is a hypocrisy, and we've talked about this last several weeks, there is a deception that can creep in where even the most devout Christians, the most devoted Christians, can be influenced and can be persuaded in subtle ways to turn away from the Lord, to go after things that are not true. David touches on this in verse 6. He says, there are many now, many who are saying, who will show us some good? The nation is plunged into civil war. We're at each other's throats. There's this armed mob out to get me. And David undoubtedly hears the whispers in the camp now. Who will be good to us? Who can show us good? Now, there's something sinister being said there. It's blasphemy. The implication is, we're on the run. There's no hope in this situation. But in order for you to believe that, you have got to have come to a place to where you've stopped trusting that God is sovereign and in control. The only way you come to a place where you begin to ask the question, who can show us some good, is if God has drifted far from your thoughts. And these are guys that are with David. The guy who loves the Lord. They're undoubtedly being influenced. They're undoubtedly being persuaded. You see, we're all beginning to falter now, really. Is the Lord good? Is the Lord in control? Can we still continue to hope in him? Now there are many who are saying, who can show us some good? Where can we go? And his immediate response to that is, lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. That's his request. David, the guy who is the primary target in this entire plot, he is the one with no one else to turn to, nowhere else to go, and he is the one saying, even now I hear the whisperings in the camp, there are many who are saying, what's the point of all of this? And his request now is this, God, we need your truth and your light to shine down on this situation. That's a remarkable request. He, he follows it up now, thinking about his friends and even those who are out to get him. And he makes this statement in praise and adoration of God. He says, you have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and their wine abounded. 
grain, the sustenance of life, the stuff that you use to make bread, the basic necessities, wine, the stuff that you break out when you're having a party, the drink of joy, okay? And his statement is, I have more joy in God than I have in being secure with the basic necessities, and I have more joy in God than I have had even when there was plenty of wine to drink. His petition is, God, I need you. I take joy in you. I trust in you. You have always made me more joyful than anyone else. But things are getting worse, and we need your truth and your light to shine into this situation. How is David, how is he not also despairing right now? His own son is out to kill him. How is he not just filled with depression? There's whisperings in the camp. Even people around me are saying, who's going to show us some good? You know what? This whole thing has gone totally sideways. It's all blown. There's no salvaging this wreck. I'm out of here. How does he not just slink off into his own corner and say, forget this? What sustains him? There's a tradition at Oxford in Britain, in the United Kingdom, one of the oldest universities in the world, primarily founded, it was, it was first founded as a divinity school, a, a theology school, a seminary of sorts. Of course, nowadays it doesn't really teach much theology. But, you know, being a very, very old school, hundreds and hundreds of years old, they still have traditions that date back to when they were uh, a theology school, a, di- a divinity school. They have songs that will play from the chapel bells throughout the day. There's a song that plays in the morning, there's a song that plays at lunch, and then there's a song that plays late in the evening, right before the students go to bed, formerly the seminary students. And what's interesting is the tradition is that these are specific hymns that are still played. In the morning, they play a song called Morning Rise, and that's the name of it. In the evening, they play a song called Evening Tide. And if you go back and you study the the history books, and you look at the traditions of Oxford back when it was a Christian institution, the concept was as you began your day, you wanted a song in the morning that, that uh, empowered you, that kind of woke you up, that sort of got you excited about the day. And it would have been a musical melody, it would have been played on church bells, but it would have been something that the seminary students were familiar with. And then later in the evening, around 9 o'clock, they would have what they called evening tide. And it would be something a little softer, a little bit more soothing. Again, it would play on bells in the evening time. And it would be something, it would be a hymn that they would have known, that they would have been familiar with, that would give them thoughts of God right as they were getting ready for bed. Thoughts of the Lord to sustain them through the night. Uh, Something to carry you through the evening, to tide you over to morning. Hence the name Evening Tide. You might call it a lullaby of sorts, Except it's not based on fairy tale or fiction. It's based on truth that was taught through hymns. And so these theology students would be reminded of those songs, would be reminded of that theology as they prepared for bed. And the concept was that they would think about those things as they would lay their heads down to go to sleep at night. This psalm that we're looking at, as I was penning the title for it, I I played with a a couple of different titles for my sermon tonight. It was convoluted. They're always going to be convoluted, I'm convinced. It it was a lengthy title, Evening Tide, A Sevenfold 
spirituality to carry you through the night. That's a, that's a mouthful. How does David not despair, given the bleakness of his situation? The answer is found in verses 3 to 5. There are seven things that are mentioned here. Seven exhortations that he gives, which he encourages those who are singing this song to do. This is a very practical song in that regard. And undoubtedly, this is David's practice. How can a man go through a hurricane and not be rocked? It's only the kind of man whose faith is unwavering and a faith in God that is unwavering. And here's what he says. Verse 3, number 1. Know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. And here's the first thing. Here's the first truth. You need to know the Lord. Knowing the Lord means you know the real Lord. Not your imagination, not your concepts, not your own ideas of who God is. This is a plea to humility. The only way that you know the real Lord is if you are willing to listen. Listening is the opposite of talking. Talking is when we say what we think, when we share our own opinions, and yet if we are to know the Lord, you don't know the Lord by constantly talking. There has to come a point in which in humility you listen. And here's the statement that David makes. Know this. The Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord is with the godly. The Lord does not abandon the godly. And when everything looks like it's all falling to pieces, you need to know that the Lord has kept the godly for himself. Know that fact. The first exhortation in David's sevenfold plan here for how we don't lose our minds when the world is falling apart is that we hold on to the fact that the Lord, we know, has set apart the godly for himself. Paul will call this concept in the book of Ephesians the helmet of salvation. The very first fact we need to remember. That God died for us. That he loves us. That he's keeping us. Here's the second thing. The Lord hears when I call to him. He will hear me. Because he has set me apart for himself. As a result of him hearing when I call. The next statement, he says, be angry and do not sin. The Lord keeps me. The Lord hears me. When you look at the world around, it's going to break your heart. You're going to get frustrated. You'll even get angry at the injustices that you see. It is right and it is God-honoring when you encounter injustice to be angry Yet if you know that the Lord keeps the godly for himself, and if you know that the Lord hears you when you call to him, even in the midst of adversity, justifiable anger surfaces, you are still, with those two facts in your mind, that the Lord keeps you for himself and that he hears you when you pray, you can still maintain self-control in righteous anger, righteous indignation, and not sin. So if we're looking at David's thought process here, his own son is out to get him. The circumstances that he has brought about to make this happen are a total sham. And his statement is, I'm not going to fly off the handle here. 
Is he angry? He's brokenhearted. Undoubtedly, there are thoughts of anger in his heart. And yet despite that, because God keeps him, and because God is listening, he doesn't have to engage in sinful response. Church, that's an important fact that we need to grasp. The only way we grow in our sanctification is if we can learn to control ourselves in adverse circumstances. Being a Christian, the end of learning about Jesus is not just going to Bible studies, attending worship services, or participating in prayer meetings. To really know the Lord, to really grow in the Lord, will require that you take that knowledge and that you can hold on to it and that you can bring yourself under control despite the circumstances and act in a way that is godly and honoring to the Lord. I promise you, whatever you're facing, it doesn't even come close to your own son chasing you out of your job, sleeping with your wives, chasing you out of town, and trying to kill you. If anybody here is struggling with that tonight, I apologize. Come talk to me afterwards and I will pray with you. That was intended to be a joke. Obviously, nobody here is struggling with that. Nobody's here struggling with that, right? Okay, good. Check it. Check it. Kind of an awkward silence. Like, Pastor Josh doesn't know about Bob over there. You know, just, okay. Right. Just want to make sure. <laughs> so he goes forward. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts, on your own beds. David practiced regular times of thoughtful meditation upon God. Makes the statement, ponder on your, in your own hearts, on your own beds. Your bed is a private place where you go to sleep. It's a place of relaxation. It's a place of comfort. It's a place where you're alone. And the statement there is meditate upon the Lord in your heart, on your bed. And he makes the statement, be silent. So for the next two, we as Christians, if we're going to practice the same type of spirituality that David practiced, there are certain things we have to hold on to. Number one, God keeps us for himself. Number two, we know he hears us when we call to him. We have to allow those truths to govern our behavior, no matter the circumstances, no matter the situation. And the only way any of that is going to be effective is if we practice regular and consistent times of careful meditation with the Lord and his word in silence and solitude, getting alone before the Lord. And then he makes the statement, offering right sacrifices, this is number six, and putting your trust in the Lord, which is number seven. Offering right sacrifices. Old Testament Israel had a system of worship that called for the slaughtering of all different types of animals for all different types of situations and circumstances. But the overwhelming truth of Scripture was this. God made it very clear. What you do with your sacrifice is meaningless if it isn't offered from the right type of heart. It isn't just what we offer, it's how we offer it. David's statement here is, yes, offer the sacrifice, but do it with a right heart. We don't do that anymore as the new covenant people, sanctified and redeemed by Christ's blood. We're not called now to offer up all manner of sacrifices for all manner of different situations. Yet we are called, as it says in the New Testament, to offer up the sacrifice of our lips, the praise of his 
name. And of course, we are called to do it with the right heart. There are two statements which will not work for us today. The Bible says, if you don't have the right heart, don't engage in hypocrisy, so don't, I don't feel like it today, so I'm not going to church. No, 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 no. The Bible says we're called to go to worship. We're called to do it. Saying you don't feel like it, therefore you're not going to do it. Yes, you may not be a hypocrite, but you're still rebellious, okay? You're still living in defiance of the Lord. The Lord calls you to worship. The Lord calls you to be a part of the church. You may not feel like it, but the solution is not to say, I'm not going to engage in hypocrisy and therefore I'm not going to go. The solution is to say, I need the Lord to change my heart so that as I go, I'm not engaging in hypocrisy. David doesn't say, offer up sacrifices whenever you feel like it. He says, offer up sacrifices, offer up right sacrifices. And we as the church, a part of our spirituality has to take advantage of the God-ordained means that he has appointed which help us to grow in our trust and our confidence in him. Sacrificing a bull, sacrificing a lamb, this is an expensive proposition. I want you to understand that for an average Israelite to take a lamb and sacrifice it to the Lord, or to take a bull and to sacrifice it for the Lord, that's a significant economic sacrifice for any family. That's a significant undertaking. To take a lamb, which would be comparable to a nice sit-down meal for your whole family at a fancy restaurant by today's economic standards, to do something like that, that's costly. You do that often enough, it adds up. Even more so with something like an oxen or a bull. Anytime you give something to God, you're letting go of it. That process in a society that is based largely on agrarian economics, farming and ranching, that is con directly confronting their ability to provide for themselves, to give a portion of what they have back to the Father and to trust Him to make up the difference, that He will provide for them, that He will look after them. So I don't feel like it, so I'm not going to sacrifice. No, that's not what David is saying. God has appointed this means for you to grow in your trust of Him. The same is true of the church today. No longer are we called to give up lambs and oxen and cows and things of this nature, but we are called to be part of the church, to love each other, to engage in fellowship, to love the preaching of the word, to love the singing of God's praises. And sometimes we don't like to do that. But the solution is not to say, well, I don't want to be a hypocrite, so I'm not going to do it. The solution is to ask God to change your heart and to engage in those practices anyway, because doing those things helps you grow closer to the Father. Number one, helmet of salvation. Know that the Lord has set the godly apart for himself. Number two, he hears our prayers. He is listening. Number three, self-control. Actually live the godly life. Be angry and do not sin. Number four, Ponder in your hearts times of meditation, times of careful reflection upon the scriptures, on your own beds, in silence. Silence before the Lord, offering right sacrifices, and ultimately all of this comes to the final statement. Putting your trust totally and completely in Him. There was no passage of scripture in Deuteronomy or Leviticus, or Genesis, 
that gave a specific how-to manual for what to do in the event that your son conspires to kill you and throw you off the throne. But what you do find in the scriptures that were available to David was no matter the circumstance, always trust in God. And that's exactly what he says. In every circumstance and in every situation of life, know that God is in control and understand that this is a growing moment in which we can either trust in ourselves and turn to our own devices or trust in the Lord. He closes with this profound statement. In peace, I will both lie down so I will actually be able to get into my bed tonight in peace. And I will sleep. He will go to sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. That's a great lullaby. But it's not a lullaby because... It's not fairy tale. It's not fiction. It's more of an evening tide. I can go to bed tonight because I know that God is going to carry me through. And he is the one that we trust in. My encouragement for you, whatever circumstances, whatever difficulties you're facing, you can trust in the Lord. We will, all of us, eventually... My daughters, I'm thinking of my daughters, they're going to sooner or later grow out of fairy tales and lullabies and bedtime stories. And the thinking is, for you and me, when we get older, well, we don't need anything to like, we don't need a bedtime story before we go to sleep at night. And yet the history of this psalm is such that David was very clear on his bed before he's drifting off to sleep. It's not a lullaby. It's an evening tide. He's thinking about the truth of God. And that's what's going to calm his heart and still his fears. And that's what's going to get him to sleep tonight. That's what's going to get us to sleep too. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we love you. We thank you for your word to us. Father, we thank you for the truth of what the Spirit wrote through David's pen. You are the God of our righteousness. Every moment that we have is an opportunity to do good for the sake of glorifying your name. And every trial and every difficulty that we face is an opportunity for us to call upon you. And in the midst of even the worst circumstances of life, Father, help us. Lord, please help us to remember that you are the only one that can make us dwell in peace and safety. Father, help us to trust in you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.